the human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine. And we will learn to utilize each of them to the maximum and learn to make decisions about what we want and how we want to feel. What a concept. And one we will explore today on The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. On our program, we'll address who you are, why you're here on this planet, how to go within, how to come to know what you believe and why. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome to The Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon. We're broadcasting from Fountain Hills, Arizona, and as always, I am so delighted that you've joined us for the show today. We have something I think you, especially if you're in business, can profit from beyond your imagination. In the early 1970s, my then-husband was running for Congress. He gave everyone on his campaign staff and me the book, Think and Grow Rich, I didn't know quite why he gave it to all of us, but I read it kind of and set it aside. In subsequent years, when I was trying to start my own business and grow my own income, I read it again. I read it. I didn't really digest it. I have to admit, I was not ready for it. My reaction was, hey, I thought and thought about being rich and it just didn't happen. And many people share the same thought because they really don't get into the book. Later, and quite a number of years later, excuse me, after I'd studied metaphysics, read and viewed the secret, followed the teachings of Abraham Hicks, and dipped my toes in the waters of quantum theory, I began to have some inkling of the incredible power of our thoughts on our mind, and I came to deeply appreciate the gift given us by Napoleon Hill in his book, Think and Grow Rich. He was definitely ahead of his time. If you're in business or want to be in business, this book should be read, reread, picked apart, and fully digested, and then you start all over doing all that again. It is not a casual read. If you say to yourself, well, I read it and I'm not rich, then you really didn't get it. Our guest today was instrumental in republishing this book as it was originally presented, and we're going to talk about it today. And I didn't until I really got into reading some of the remarks made by Napoleon Hill, didn't get the richness of this original edition, and it's really quite delightful. Mitch Horowitz is a writer, speaker, and publisher with a lifelong interest in man's search for meaning. He is the Penn Award-winning author of Occult America and One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life. Mitch has written on everything from the secret life of Ronald Reagan to the war on witches for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Salon, Politico, and Time.com. Those are biggies. Mitch is vice president and executive editor at Tarcher Peregree, which is a division of Penguin Random House, where he publishes books on New Age, the occult, and the metaphysical. He and his wife raised two sons in an incredibly loud apartment in New York City, and that's one of my favorite lines from any bio I've ever received. (laughs) He can be found... At MitchHorowitz.com, you can find his links on the self-improvement blog, and I encourage you to go there and see his picture and read his bio. 
It is absolute, my, it's my absolute great honor to welcome Mitch Horowitz to the Self-Improvement Show. Mitch, welcome. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. And uh, from the lack of background noise, you'll note that I'm not doing this interview from my apartment. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, I thought we were going to have an interesting time because I saw a couple going door to door a little while ago looking like they were um, soliciting some interest in their specific religion. And I had to go out and say, please don't come to my door. We're about to do a, a radio show. And my dog would go absolutely ballistic if anybody came to the door. Yeah, so I totally I understand <laughs> you know, what you're talking about. <laughs> I do late night radio shows from the apartment. And, uh, you know, I just live in constant uh, uh, trepidation that, you know, one of the kids is going to wake up and demand apple juice in the middle of the night or something in front of a national audience. But with you, I'm in a very quiet space. Oh, well, and right now the dog's asleep, so we're we're in business here. Let's start at the beginning with that first question that some people have grown to hate. You know, tell us about yourself. Who is Mitch Horowitz? Well, I grew up uh, as a kid in the borough of Queens in New York City, and it was a wonderful time to grow up amid all the mysteries that were floating in the air in the 1970s. You'd flick on the TV and there would be rogue gurus and astrologers talking to Merv Griffin and reruns of Dark Shadows and the Twilight Zone episodes of In Search Of. And I just grew fascinated with the occult, the esoteric, the metaphysical, the unknown. And I nurtured that interest into adulthood and um, became an editor at a division of Penguin Random House that specializes in New Age and metaphysical books and also became a historian of alternative spirituality because I felt that the history of some of these very impactful movements in America and some of the people who shaped these movements was either not getting written or was getting written by outsiders who didn't really understand the values that emanate from these movements. So I decided that we needed to document our own history. And I write as what I would call a believing historian, and that characterizes my first two books, Occult America and One Simple Idea, which is a history and analysis of the positive thinking movement. And I'm working on new books now. I just completed one called The Miracle of a Definite Chief Aim, where I'm writing Mm -hmm. as a more uh, hands-on, practical Inquirer, you know, you you know, I'm moving more in the direction right now myself of self-help, practical philosophy, hands-on ideas. Um, my new book is inspired by Napoleon Hill, and it deals with a central theme in his work, which is the absolute importance of having a purpose in life. So. I'm growing right now as a writer myself. I continue to write as a historian, but I'm also writing as a practical philosopher. That's really very interesting, and you just answered like my first three questions. So, you know, here we go. Uh, <laughs> one of the questions I had, you know, that that really, I don't know where, where it fits, but, you know, the book, um, Alan's book, As a Man Thinketh, came out in, I think, 1903, something like right. that. Yes. I don't see much I don't see any mention of him unless I missed it in Think and Grow Rich, but he had to have influenced Napoleon Hill. Oh, without question. You know, you'll find James Allen's phraseology running throughout Napoleon Hill, Dale Carnegie, Norman Vincent Peale, and the works of others. Um, you, you know, many of the people who wrote the popular books of mind metaphysics didn't want to be seen as attached 
to the new thought movement or the positive thinking movement uh, or any particular movement. And they often didn't name their sources, but you can detect their sources by just opening to any page of their books, you know, for example. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, Norman Vincent Peale and, and, and Napoleon Hill would frequently use the phrase thoughts or things. In fact, that's how uh, Napoleon Hill opens Think and Grow Rich. He writes, truly thoughts are things, and that's a phrase that's been bopping around American metaphysics since the 1870s, and it is one of the catchphrases of the movement, as is James Allen's title, As a Man Thinketh, which is adapted from uh, Proverbs 23.7, As a Man Thinketh in His Heart, So Is He. So these figures really reveal their sources and their phraseology. They don't often name them. They don't often refer to New Thought or to other mystical movements. But there's no question that uh, James Allen was one of the most formative influences on Hill, Dale Carnegie, um, Norman Vincent Peale, and a wide range of other people who didn't necessarily uh, put the label of mysticism on their work. Oh, and I totally agree with you. You can see it all throughout. But, you know, I don't think until I went through it this time, I really got the full importance and the full impact of what Napoleon Hill had done. Uh, This time it blows me away, and things that I didn't even... See, I have no remembrance that I ever read them. Yes. <laughs> now really stick out and say, oh, why, why didn't I understand this the first couple times through? And he says so clearly in the book, you really need to, this is not a casual read. This is yes. something to be studied. And you have to do every single step. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to talk about it. I want to ask you one question, a couple questions about your early books yeah, you wrote about occult America, mm-hmm. and what was the big takeaway here? I mean, a lot of people don't even want to admit there is an occult America. Right. The big takeaway there is that what we call alternative or underground spiritual traditions are very much a part of the grid work of our own nation, of our own culture. Things that are very, very mainstream today, whether yoga, meditation, mind-body stress reduction, acupuncture, uh, and and a variety of, of other things, including, in fact, positive thinking, motivational thinking. All of these very mainstream things are rooted in early esoteric and occult movements that were able to flower in America because even going back to the colonial days, there was a relative relatively significant amount of religious freedom in this country, uh, especially compared to Europe, where people were being persecuted for alternative religious beliefs that had been popularized during the Renaissance. Now, at that time in Europe, those alternative religious beliefs, things that emanated from the ancient world, Greece, Rome, ancient Egypt, were referred to as occult or occulta, as the Latin term went, which just meant secret or hidden or unknown. There was nothing sinister about these things. Uh, Their followers, neither in antiquity nor during the Renaissance, uh, did not associate these things with Satanism or demonology or anything of the sort. It was the opponents of these alternative strands of spirituality who mischaracterized the occult and the esoteric in that way. So I like to use 
terms like a cult because I don't want to cede them to the critics, either historically or in our own day. These terms have historic integrity. And when scholars and translators used the term occult during the Renaissance, they were simply trying to find out, uh, simply trying to find a way to refer to all these spiritual traditions, these pre-Christian traditions from the ancient world that had vanished from surface view during the Dark Ages. There were no ancient temples or priesthoods or orders anymore uh, in the above-ground Western world. So they were trying to figure out how to refer to these antique philosophies of the of the past. And uh, for a while, there was a great flowering of occult thought in the Renaissance, but there was also a, a backlash. And during the 1600s, when this backlash was in full swing, there were small groups of people who migrated across the Atlantic to the New World, to the burgeoning U.S. colonies, where they actually did find a remarkable degree of religious freedom compared to what they had known back home. So that's America has been a sort of a safe harbor for alternative religious practitioners going back literally to its earliest colonial days, and that's had a tremendous impact on this country. It's no accident at all that New Age ideas, including mental healing and positive thinking, and again, New Age is a term that I use in a laudatory way, uh, that these ideas really found a kind of springboard in America. They were spread from America to the rest of the world. America has been a kind of engine of religious experiment in the world. And that's actually been true for a couple of centuries. Uh, Freemasonry found a tremendous influence here. Spiritualism, or talking to the dead as a modern practice, uh, got started here. Uh, Mesmerism what we today call hypnotism, was being practiced in Europe. But when it came to America, it became widely popularized and broadly applied. So the history of our nation grew hand-in-hand with the history of alternative spirituality. So that's the takeaway from Occult America. Things that we think are sort of hidden away beneath the floorboards are actually much more mainstream than we think and much more intertwined with American history than we think. So that's what Occult America is about. Interesting. And on that note, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Think and Grow Rich. This is Irene Conlon with my guest saying stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work-life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. When you see someone, are you seeing the person or the perception? 
We see labels such as fat, thin, black, white, rich, poor, but we don't always see the true identity. Listen for New Dimensions with Reverend Nicholas Barrett. On this program, we'll embrace the breaking down of societal paradigms, our norms, and acceptance of our false selves. You can find your identity the way that God intended. Forget all the labels that you think you see. Tune in every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions, some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Tune in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the Self Improvement Blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. My guest today is Mitch Horowitz, who has been instrumental in putting out the original version of Think and Go Rich. We were talking about one of his books, uh, Occult America, and we were talking about it at the break. And my question was, and he said, oh, let's talk about this. In this new land that came to be in a great way, because they, people were seeking religious freedom, mm-hmm. what was this anomaly about burning witches? Why were yep. they not free to believe as they believed and practice as they believed they should practice? That's a wonderful, wonderful question, because, of, of course, uh, many Americans know of, most Americans know of the Salem witch trials and the mob violence and the executions that took place in Salem, Massachusetts, and the early 1690s. The remarkable thing about Salem, tragic as it was, catastrophic as it was, it did not continue. It was an anomaly in American history. We had a situation in Europe where a witch craze went on literally for centuries. Sometimes it petered out, sometimes it got fired up, but in every nation in Europe, from the west to the east, from wealthy nations like Switzerland to uh, poorer nations, some of the nations in the east, you had a witch craze that was going on for generations and that extended well into what we call the Age of Enlightenment. That didn't happen in America. Salem is such an important piece of history because 
it is a episode of mob violence that served as a kind of warning beacon, as a kind of ugly window on human nature, but not as something that repeated across generations. Now, of course, there were still instances of religious violence, mob violence, religious persecution in America. There are instances today where people who are practicing neo-paganism or Wicca are harassed. I have um, a piece in the New York Times about the contemporary murder and, and, and violence against witches, uh, both here in the West and in uh, Eastern nations and in Africa. So it's a problem that I take very, very seriously. But it didn't continue in America the way it did in Europe for generations. It was an anomaly rather than a pattern. And that, that's something extraordinary in our history. You know, it, it, it all, every now and then I, I want to write or speak about how important it is that we retain our freedom and, you know, allow other people to have theirs, uh, you know, it's interesting to me what's happening in this country now because we do not respect that. Yes. Anyway, we could do a, several shows on that topic alone, and For that's sure. not what we want to do today. <laughs> One more question. On your website, you talk about the 30-day mental challenge. Yeah. Tell us what the 30-day mental challenge is and how do people get in on it. Oh, well, they can get in on it by, as you said, just going to my website. It's MitchHorowitz.com. Just scroll to the bottom of the home page, and you can, you can connect up with, to the 30-Day Mental Challenge. Very simply, you write out a pledge to think of things that are promising, advancing, productive, useful for 30 days. You absolutely commit to this in writing. You write out a contract. You sign the contract as if you are dealing with a sacred document, like a, a wedding license or a wedding contract. Actually, and you are, you, aren't you? Which yeah. you are. It's your life. And you do your very, very best to attempt this for 30 days. I include an email address with it so that people can write back to me, either with questions or comments, or just to tell me how things went. It's inspired by an exercise that I encountered in an early New Thought book uh, written by uh, two ministers who had started a very influential mental healing movement called the Emmanuel Movement in the early 20th century. And a scientist gave them some testimony that he was at a very dark period in his life as he was turning age 50 and that he committed himself for 30 days to trying the ideas of New Thought, to trying positive mind metaphysics, which he was convinced were just garbage, but he was desperate. He tried it, and it dramatically altered his life, both inner and outer. So I want us to take up that experiment again today. It's just something to try. I don't want to lead people to what they're going to find or promise them that they're going to find exactly what that scientist found himself, but they will find something. And I think we all have to experiment and try things together. So just go to MitchHorowitz.com. It's super easy to find the link, or you can send me an email. I'm really easy to find. My email is up on my website. I'll send your listeners uh, a couple of cards, one about the 30-day mental challenge and one that I call the three-step miracle, which is a really fascinating exercise of writing down what you want and uh, using some very particular methods to get closer to it. Sounds wonderful, and I encourage all the listeners <clears throat> to this show to, to do this. Um, 
I might even do it myself. Right on. <laughs> yeah, right on. Before we get into the book, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about Napoleon Hill. Give us a yep. thumbnail of his background because it's so fascinating how he came to write this book. Yeah. Well, Napoleon Hill was born in the late 19th century uh, in coal mining territory in Virginia. And he uh, had a career in which he bopped around to different things. He managed a lumber yard. He managed a coal mine. It wasn't unusual in, in those days for people to bop around to very diffuse careers. And he eventually found himself as a journalist at an inspirational magazine called Bob Taylor's Magazine. Bob Taylor was the former governor of Tennessee. And Hill wrote articles about success methods of business leaders, how business and industrial leaders had found their way to success in the world. And in 1908, he got an interview with the industrialist Andrew Carnegie. And Carnegie suggested to Hill that he make a study of all kinds of successful people in different fields, inventors, diplomats, generals, financiers, and see whether they had a common set of principles in their lives that led to success. And Hill committed himself to this study for about 20 years, and he found that Carnegie's hunch was correct, that there seemed to be a common set of principles that reappeared again and again in the lives of exceptional people. And he boiled them down to 13 principles, which formed the grid work for his book, Think and Grow Rich. And in that book, he maintained that if you followed these 13 principles, which seem to repeat over and over again in the lives of high achievers, you could fulfill whatever project was closest to your heart, whether it was getting rich or whether it was something else. Although the book is called Think and Grow Rich, it can be used in pursuit of any ethical aim. So whether you're an artist or a teacher or a soldier or a political figure, whoever you are, whatever is close to your heart, and if you're willing to dedicate yourself to it with integrity, and you're willing to produce something of quality that will really add to the productivity of the world, you can use Think and Grow Rich. I tell young people, whatever you're about, whether you're an artist, whether you're an activist, whatever you're about, you're selling yourself short if you're not reading Think and Grow Rich because his 13 steps are really a blueprint to any form of accomplishment. My take on it is it's a, a blueprint for success and happiness in anybody's life. Yes. Whatever their background, whatever their focus, whatever their values. It, but, but, but it does demand that the reader commit to one specific goal. You, you, you know, the, the, the entry point to the book is, and, and the first requirement is, step one, you, you can't have a bunch of general desires. You can't have vague or undefined desires. You have to have one definite chief aim, which is actually what my new book is about. You have to have one definite chief aim on which you're willing to stake everything. And this aim has to be something that you don't just want as some sort of a preference or wishy-washy desire. It has to be something that you're absolutely 
passionate about, that is your life, he found that that was the starting point for all success. You know, we think today of an obsession as something negative, as a symptom that has to be treated, but he contended that in the lives of really exceptional people, you do tend to find that they have one obsessive thing that they care about above everything else, whatever it is. And he said, you really need to find that for yourself. That's step one, and that sort of is the entry point to his entire program. Do you think today, well, I'm sure the answer is yes to this, but it seems to me that desire, he started out with desire, Mm -hmm. it, it seems that we're so fractionated with all the things, you know, it's just being always in contact with everybody, never having a minute to think through who who we are, what we are, what we want, you know, do you think it's a little harder to get to this burning desire these days? I, I do, I do, especially since there's a lot of inexpensive consumer goods and cheap thrills that can distract us. Uh, it's very easy to fritter away our energies today. Uh, it's very easy to fall asleep at night in front of the television or with your phone in your hand. It's very easy to be on social media all day and to just yeah. You can spend a whole morning on Facebook. I, I don't. Yeah, you know, I don't put my articles on Facebook first anymore because I don't get anything else done. That is actually a really shrewd move. Uh, my wife has been telling me that I should do the same thing because it, it is a time suck and it does become distracting. And I think that digital culture has brought us a lot of distractions today. And it, it does tend to make our energies and our attention diffuse. And that's a problem because Hill's contention, which I think is absolutely right, is that you have to have one chief thing towards which you're working. Of course, you have a home, you have a family, you have to get your car repaired. Life is always going to place multiple demands on us. But through those multiple demands, like a spotlight, you have to have one thing towards which you're working if you really want to get somewhere. Another thing is people very often have contradictory aims. You know, they say, well, I'd like to raise a family and I'd like to travel to exotic places. That's not easy for that to work out unless you're a cruise director, you know. Uh, People will say they want uh, to be in positions of authority, but they also want to have a lot of free time. Well, people in positions of authority have very little free time. So, You know, sometimes we'll have all these contradictory aims, but Hill's challenge was to choose just one. You know, the thing that strikes me when I just look at the 13 steps, Mm -hmm. you know, most people get hung up on the title, Think and Grow Rich, and they're thinking, I want to be rich, I want to be rich, I want to do this and be rich, blah, blah, but they never get to the other 12. Right. <laughs> so can, can, can I throw out the, the, you know, the title of the other 12 and just have you give us a, a quick reaction to what that means? You know, because I, I'm sure that most of our listeners have never heard all 13 of these. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, it means, it means failure, you know, because Hill's contention <laughs> was that you need to act it, with a series of coordinated steps in order to get rich or in order to accomplish anything. Uh, 
you know, he has among his 13 principles are organized planning, um, auto-suggestion, or what we might call the use of affirmations or mantras or meditation. But he throws faith in there a second, and I thought that's, I think that's really interesting. He throws faith in there. It is very interesting. The biggest pitfall people have when approaching Think and Grow Rich is that they think they already get it. They think they can just cherry-pick those ideas or exercises that that seem appealing to them, and other things they think, well, gee, I've done that already, or I've heard of that already. You have to approach this book with a clean slate. It won't work if you go only halfway, and it won't work if you approach it with a attitude of been there, done that. You know, it's very easy for people who have read a lot of self-help books to get to a certain chapter and think, well, gee, you know, I've, I've done that already. Or, you know, Hill has a chapter on enthusiasm. Well, I already have lots of enthusiasm. I can skim that and, you know, go on to the following chapter on, you know, the mystery of sex transmutation. That sounds interesting. You know, you, you really can't do that. There's no room for skipping around in this book. What I challenge people to do is to take this book, sit down with it, and wipe your mind clean of everything that has come before. Even if you're a self-help junkie like me, forget it. Just throw everything else out. Dedicate yourself for six months to following the program in this book as if your life depends on it. You know, I always tell friends when they come to me and they say, I'm stuck, I don't know where I want to go. I'll give them a copy of Think and Grow Rich, and I will say to them, you know, go home tonight, start reading this book, and do the exercises, do the steps as if your life depends on it. If you do that, things will happen. But it, it needs to be that kind of commitment. There's no way to approach this book halfway. I discovered that myself. You know, I read the book several years ago, kind of like it were, what you were describing at the top of the show. And I read it in a kind of noncommittal way, half skimming. And I thought, okay, I get it. You know, I, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. And it was about two years ago that I went back to the book with complete commitment. And that's when things started happening for me. And I, I, I said to myself, I've got, if I'm going to go into this book, I'm going to do it all the way. And, and that's the secret. You have to do it all the way. Is that what made you want to go back and republish his original? Because there's some yep. that have really taken license with his book. Oh, for sure. There's so many different editions out there, uh, and there are revisions, most of which are unnecessary. Um, that's exactly what it was. And I was, uh, I was talking to the mother of a friend of one of my sons, and she noticed that I was reading Think and Grow Rich. My copy of Think and Grow Rich is covered in clear packing tape because I've reread it so many times it would fall apart. And she said to me she had heard of the book and she wanted to check it out. Could I recommend an edition? And I thought to myself, all I really wanted to do was recommend to her a replica edition of the original because I really think that's the best, the 1937 original. And I thought, well, gee, why don't I just republish that You know, here at Tartar Penguin where I work? And so I did. I gave her the first copy. And... Now, I'm very happy with it. We call it Think and Grow Rich, the classic edition. And very simply, it's a replica of the original so that you can read the book as it was read by its original readers in 1937. I think Hill's 
original work has a special energy to it. It was perfect. It didn't need messing with. And uh, I'm sort of a, I take a back-to-basics approach. I, I always like to have the original texts of all the great self-help works, whether it's well, Alcoholics Anonymous or Psycho-Cybernetics, you name it. Oh, I love Psycho-Cybernetics as well. It's another one of my favorites. One of the things that I just find so wonderful are his comments about the book and how it should be read and yep. his little asides you know, they're they're so rich, and I yeah. I never picked up on this before. You know, it was like ho hum. Yeah, right. <laughs> he he had the ability to speak to you as an individual, and I think I would I would have to say I really think that Hill, who died in 1971, I never met him. Who I think he wished very deeply that people coming to his books and coming to his work would experience success. I think he genuinely cared, genuinely cared that his books and his writings be useful. So when he writes those instructions to the reader and says, you know, don't rush through this, don't, you know, this is not a a marathon reading session, you've got to stop, you've got to pause, you've got to do the exercises, he really is, in a sense, speaking to you personally, and he really means what he says. And if you take him at his word, you'll benefit. You know, some of the things he he did were way ahead of his time, and, and some things that a lot of people wouldn't understand, like um, specialized knowledge. Okay, yeah. what is specialized knowledge? Oh, I love yeah. that section of Think and Grow Rich, and it's really helped me. He said that if you wanted to have effective plans, if you wanted to be an effective actor, a person who really put into motion what he wanted to accomplish, you had to have very concrete, accurate, specialized knowledge. And that meant when you're researching your project, not just talking to anybody about it, but really seeking out people and sources who have gravity, who really know what they're talking about and have current, up-to-date information. He also said, and I would, I would really emphasize this to everyone listening, avoid rumor, avoid gossip, avoid idle talk, avoid tail-bearing. Not only do those things hurt other people and us, not only do those things fritter away our energies, but they are almost always inaccurate. Don't listen to or spread stories about other people or listen to people's idle opinions. A lot of people get frustrated because they share their plans with friends or family members and somebody might make some negative crack or remark that's deflating. That is one of humanity's favorite pastimes. You can keep your own counsel. You can keep silent. You don't have to talk to your plans and about your plans and dreams to other people. And in fact, you shouldn't. Uh, Hill does advise in another of his steps that you form what is called a mastermind group, which is basically a support group in which a, a small group of people meet at regular intervals to discuss their plans and ideas, to support one another, maybe to pray or meditate on one's and one another's plans. And he insists that there needs to be complete harmony, uh, harmony and a spirit of real um, uh, comity and cooperation in a mastermind group. That's a place where you can talk about your plans. But don't just talk about it sitting at the dinner table you know, with your uncle from Long Island visiting because people are hostile, people are jealous, people are apt all the time to just throw sand on our bonfire. 
and you shouldn't put yourself through it. Part of the pursuit of specialized knowledge means keeping silent. You don't just share what you're doing with anybody. You evaluate, you size up, you properly measure your sources, your colleagues, your confidants, and you do a lot of research. You need a lot of numbers. You need a lot of know-how, and you need to know that these things are coming from viable sources. That chapter is even more important today than it was in his day because with the advent of digital culture, there's so much truly worthless information floating around out there. Um, Whenever anybody shares a link to anything about a controversial issue, you can almost guarantee that it's going to be wrong, that it's going to be misinforming you. (laughs) So think really carefully about your sources of information and think really carefully about who you take into your confidence. Um, That chapter was a really big help to me. And, and, And again, you know, it's just one of those steps that people might feel tempted to skip over because they think, well, gee, I kind of get that. I didn't get it. You know, when I went back and read that chapter on specialized knowledge, it really meant a lot to me. Yeah, when you go back and read any of them, it's like, you know, for me, it was like I'd never read it before. Yeah. that's. that's I don't know whether I was more open to it this time. I don't know what it was, but every chapter, you know, and, and you're seeing what he recommended you know, acted out in society now, like the mastermind groups. You know, they're mastermind groups that charge big money to belong to them because of the expertise re- uh, represented there. And it, it, you know, blows me away, but it's what a good thing. Well, his idea was that the mastermind group should be free, should be cooperative, should be voluntary. It was really just a matter of assembling a group of people. It could be as small as two people, as large as seven people, with whom you meet at regular intervals, and you just discuss your plans. The key ingredient, uh, as he saw it, was harmony of purpose. There had to be complete comity and, and harmony within a mastermind group. I have a mastermind group, and uh, it's spread out uh, its members are spread out across the country. We meet by conference call at a designated time each week, and that works really well too. Um, so if you can't be in physical proximity to the people that you want to talk to, and remember, it can be as small as two people, um, you can you can you can do it by conference call. That's that's how I've been doing it for the past couple of years. Yeah, there's some things that the internet has really blessed us with, and and you know I. I think Skype conference calls are one of them because you can even see each other and, and do this. Yeah, um, it has its uses, for sure. Yeah. It has its uses. On that note, we're going to take a break. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Mitch Horowitz, saying stay tuned. We're going to be back with more. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Are you in your own driver's seat? Tune in to a program that will get you there based on what others have managed to do through challenges in their lives and how they persevered. Tune in to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. On our show, we use real issues and experts to help you reclaim your life. Danielle and her guests are here to steer you in the right direction. Make sure that you are here every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to harness your power. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. 
You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Tune in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the Self Improvement Blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. My guest today is Mitch Horowitz, and we're talking about Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. They just came out with a new edition, the classic edition that is word-to-word the same as the original, and it is so delightful. I hope you're getting an idea of the richness and the value of this book. One of the things that Napoleon Hill talks about, and I want to be sure we get to it, is the sixth sense. Mm -hmm. And this isn't something that was really popular (laughs) back in the days he published it. And and science has said there's no such thing. I don't know whether they've changed their mind. I think maybe they have by now. But let's talk a little bit about the sixth sense that Napoleon Hill talked about in, in relation to becoming rich or or successful in whatever it is you, whatever your endeavor is. Sure. Uh, Napoleon Hill believed that there was a non-physical aspect to intelligence. This is something I believe myself, not just because I I feel like believing it, but because there have been viable, deeply scrutinized laboratory experiments, uh, in particular, I'm thinking of the work by the scientist J.B. Ryan at Duke University in the 1930s, work that Hill was very aware of, very supportive of, in which information has been transferred anomalously from one person to another, sometimes separated by great distances, sometimes separated by physical barriers. And these experiments continue to go on uh, today by people like uh, the scientist Dean Radin at the Institute for Noetic Sciences or the psychologist Daryl Bem at Cornell. People howl over these things on Wikipedia and online, uh, claiming that they're mistakes, they're frauds, they've never been repeated. None of that is correct. Uh, Journalists who are on a deadline and who are writing about these things often pick up on the chatter that goes on online because they're apt to look at the first 10 search results they get via Google. Um, But if you read more deeply, and if you're really interested in the subject matter, the truth is ESP experiments, as they've gone on in this country for almost 100 years, have produced some really extraordinary data under strenuously difficult uh, conditions, limited funding, uh, attacks from critics 
who call themselves skeptics, but really are more writing and speaking in a polemical way, who don't want these experiments to go on on university campuses. They fear it'll unleash irrationality. But in effect, what they're really doing is squelching a legitimate question, which is, is there a non-physical aspect to intelligence? And I think we've seen enough in laboratory settings to conclude that the answer is yes. Um, But in a sense, that's anything but a conclusion. Really, it's just a deepened question as to, you know, who are we? What are we made up of? What are our connections to one another? Those are questions. Um, Hill believed, uh, I think, in an informed and critical way in the existence of what he referred to as a sixth sense, that is to say, some sort of transfer of information mind to mind. And he felt that if you followed the steps in his book and you followed them with real commitment, you would finally reach the point where you did have a more exquisitely sensitive mental experience where you could pick up on intuitions, where you could sometimes communicate your needs to other people in a a fashion that was not explicable by ordinary sensory information or ordinary forms of communication. You could, in fact, gain the use of some kind of higher faculties of the mind, which we understand in only a very uh, foggy way, both today and in his time, but which he felt were real and which could be found in the testimony of individuals' lives as well as in the experiments at Duke and other places. So his encouragement was follow these exercises, work at them, and by the time you get to step 13 uh, in Think and Grow Rich, you will be on the threshold of developing your mental faculties to the point where you will have a deeper and higher kind of insight. You will be more sensitive. You will be more intuitive. You will be capable of communicating your wishes, needs, desires to people in a way that goes beyond just the strictly um, sensory or, or goes beyond the five senses. It's very tantalizing and it's very interesting, and I would encourage people to experiment with it. That's what Napoleon Hill would have wanted, and that's my encouragement. And mine, and he calls it the door to the temple of wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Love yeah. that phrase. I want to talk a little bit about his definition of a genius. He says a genius is a man, and I'm assuming or a woman, who has discovered how to increase the vibration of thought to the point where he can freely communicate with sources of knowledge not available through the ordinary rate of vibration of thought. Mm -hmm. That's pretty lofty. You know, sources and of knowledge. Quite flowery language. You know, I've I've never gone in for the vibration language myself, but what he's trying to get at there is that he believed in the existence of what Ralph Waldo Emerson referred to as the oversoul. He believed, or what the ancient Greeks referred to as nous, an overmind. He believed that there was a common pool of intelligence from which we all drew, and that our individual brains were not just engines of thought and logic, but were kind of receivers of this higher intelligence. He referred to it as the mastermind. Um, uh, Jung referred to it in a somewhat different way as the collective unconscious. Emerson referred to it as the oversoul. And Hill believed that there was this higher form of intellect in which all men and women participate, and that a genius 
was an individual who received ideas, insights, and refinement from this higher, overarching intellect that he referred to as the mastermind. This notion that thought is not something necessarily produced or produced exclusively in our brains, but our brains are kind of radio transmitters or channels or receiving centers for thought that also has a non-physical existence exclusive of our bodies. And that if we sensitize ourselves through the exercises in his book, we can aspire to receiving ideas from this higher mind, this overmind or mastermind, as he called it. And, of course, you know, when we use those terms, we're just trying to apply words to things that don't have a tangible day-to-day existence for us. We do the same thing when we use terms like ego or id or soul or essence. It's yeah. our attempts, you know, in this in this three-dimensional world of ours to talk about things that are felt but not necessarily experienced in a tactile way. So that's what Hill was driving at. And he felt that that was the quality of, of a genius. The more one could participate in this kind of overmind, as he saw it, uh, the more one would be a genius, applied to anything, whether it was uh, in invention or athletics or the arts. He felt you could be a genius in a variety of different ways. And my very limited knowledge of quantum theory would say that they would agree with his thinking. I, that. I think that's co- correct. I mean, the, the people who are on the, 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 the edge of quantum theorizing, legitimate physicists and, and researchers, I think, would at least agree with that, that line of inquiry. You know, there's been this uh, kind of scuttlebutt online and in some of the press that those of us who are on the new age have maligned and misunderstood quantum theory, and that's just not true as a, as a, as a general statement. That's simply not true. I write about no. this in my book, One Simple Idea, which is a history of the positive thinking movement. The finest intellects in positive mind philosophy foresaw some of the things that quantum theorists are dealing with and asking about and looking into today. There are, in fact, points of commonality between some of the things William James was writing and literally in 1902 and things that quantum theorists are writing and and thinking about in the 21st century. So uh, spiritual philosophy uh, was kind of an early antecedent to some of the existential ideas that some quantum physicists are thinking about. So New Agers have not misunderstood it, um, not as a general principle. And, and, and I think that, that, that some of what Napoleon Hill wrote uh, foresaw some of what's going on in quantum theorizing today. And on that note, I have to say we are at the very end of the show. We're going to take that as the thought you'd like to leave our listeners today. We're on the right track, everybody. We're on the right track. This is Irene Conlon and my guest Mitch Horowitz saying thank you so much for being with us today and come back next week for more of the Self-Improvement Show. Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here.